for your Nintendo Entertainment System. Now you and the games are one. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Everything else is child's play. Chris Honeywell is an internet loudmouth. If a man had an overpowered riot glove, a man could rule the world. Hated and reviled by his few remaining friends, he catches the attention of Thomas DJ, perhaps the world's most cunning supervillain. Ensconced in his ultra-scientific hideout, with only his robot army and stunning assistant to keep him company, DJ springs into action. What is this idiocy? In Virginia, use the molecular transmigration beam to bring this fool to me! Virginia trains the hellish mechanism, and with a clap like thunder, and in a blinding psychedelic light, Chris Honeywell stands before his tormentor. Normally, I do not suffer fools, but I see beyond the yawning chasm of ignorance that is your brain and the endless sluice of sewage which is your mouth that they form a basic animal intelligence that I may be able to mold to my own devices. Uh, okay. Therefore, in my mercy, I offer you two choices. Instant painless disintegration, or you study grindhouse movies at my feet now! Choose! Uh, I choose not disintegration. So be it. In one month, I shall assign you a movie to watch and will summon you again. Be ready! Or the consequences shall be swift and merciless. Right, but how do I get to the... Now go! And thus began one of the most dangerous and unpredictable endeavors in evil sciencing. The Honeywell Experiment. Virginia, summon the subject. Okay, I ra- I raise I raise ten. Alright, I'm in. Okay. Hmm. Raise raise five. Alright, man, I'm trying to play the game, but I'm just distracted by that stupid glove. It's making me nervous. I'll see you five. Okay, I call. <sighs> impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. Weren't expecting that, huh, evil genius? <laughs> no! ah. <laughs> Weren't expecting that, were you? Lab monkey. Ah. 
Jeez. That's not Word. fair. Life is Did that unfair. glove even have anything to do with that electrocution? I don't even think it did. Why are you wearing the glove? Ow, that hurt. Because we are talking about the glove. Oh, right, right. 1979. Feels like it's 1974. Um, and we're... Talking about this specifically because we are marking the passing of a great actor in the realm of genre cinema, Mr. John Saxon. And, and boy, oh boy, this is a movie I'm sure he wanted us to remember him. Uh, yeah, by. exactly. Because because I know a lot of people out there are talking about Enter the Dragon and Nightmare on it. Nightmare. Yep. And um some of his Italian westerns, but nobody is remembering the glove. So we decided we're going to remember it. <laughs> so it's got a great poster. <laughs> it sure does have a great poster. I, I gotta say, I, I um, I was I was on the internet and I posted yeah. the theme song to the glove and and our our mutual friend Scott McGregor. Uh, actually did remember the glove had fond had like i don't know if he i don't know if he actually said whether he had fond or unfond memories yeah. but it's what like he remembers it very strongly by sneaking down to watch it on hbo late at night uh, and then check out these taglines these are taglines used to sell this movie it's a killing machine the law built then had to ban it's so terrifying. It's a glove. The glove. It's on the wrong hand, and now the horror begins. It's just a glove with lead in it. Wanted. Dead. Not alive. It's just a glove. <laughs> yeah, it is just a glove. It, it is. Like, the, I mean, immediately... And, and the, 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 flying about that... Without, without, without really, I mean, all that is all technically, that's all technically true. This is just a good, good, uh, you know, sell the sizzle, not the steak. Because, yeah. because it's like the, the picture that, but the picture of the glove just red on yellow saying danger glove. It, it totally <laughs> tells you, it just, it whispers in your ear, this glove is mechanized. And gives yeah. you superpowers to punch through walls and lift things up, even yeah. though that's physically impossible. It's a movie, so this is some like mech glove that's that's just this brutal thing, and it's sort of just like a blackjack that you put on your hand. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there's that scene where Saxon. To, to kind of establish how how tough the glove really is, breaks that that table, and I'm thinking <laughs> to myself that that's more Saxon than the glove. I I could break yeah it's it's like this one like probably one inch, less than one inch board, spread like you know on either side of it, on either end of it is uh, you know the supports for it. But it's you know you can see it's sort of bowing in the middle, so yeah. it, it was it was gonna go. But <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, l literally, if you made the glove today, 
or like if it was a a comic book or something you would like punch in the engine block of a car with it and stuff you know you yeah. would you would punch well, a car and the does... whole front end would just squash down on the ground or something well to be fair Rosie Greer does dismantle a car with it yeah but that's but mostly again, Rosie Greer that is Rosie Greer <gasps> Rosie Greer is way more impressive than the glove and <laughs> I understand that the glove was supposed to be symbolic mm-hmm. <laughs> and but it yeah there's a there's a lot of things not working there's a lot of things working that didn't work in yeah. this movie that they tried that they had going and i could see what they were trying to do mm-hmm. pro- probably or and and i have some conspiracy theories about Uh-oh. this one of them is may i i didn't look to you know to get any information on yeah. the, well, there's on no the production on of this TV, movie so which but, i think but, is suspect but i thought maybe this did get made a little closer to 1974 mm-hmm. and maybe got a little bit of doctoring up to to because man this thing really screams uh tv pilot to me One of the th- reasons we're, we're talking about this is that something that we have not talked about much in terms of Grindhouse Cinema, because we have chosen very wisely what to discuss, right? We've chosen some really great, wacky shit. Yeah, This, and... is, a, this is a classic Grindhouse bait and switch. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to bet that if we, we took the real story of this film, which is about some schlubby, down-in-his-luck ex-baseball player, um, bounty hunter named Sam, it would be about 72 minutes, which is about the same length as a two-hour TV movie. Yes, yes. So I'm thinking, so I think you might be right here in that it was originally intended for television, but nobody would pick it up. So they added on this extra 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, with this character of Victor, played by Roosevelt Greer, the great Rosie Greer, who I don't know if people remember these days. Um, I I think Rosie Greer was in it the whole time. I hmm. think that uh, my theory is this was a pilot, and it showed... How he got the glove. Right. <laughs> this this is the beginning of the series. This guy is a bounty hunter, but now he's got the glove. Mm-hmm. And, and the glove is his sort of Batman right. vigilante dark side. Mm-hmm. And he and he inherited the glove from Rosie Greer. And I think they padded it out with more with either the love story or no, no, probably the beat not. Down. But because every one of these would have had to have a love story in it, or yeah. or quote unquote love, some sort of romantic interest happening, but I think they padded it out maybe with some of his uh, collars, yeah, and stuff, and and just well, stre- stretched it into a movie. Director thing. was interested in. Yeah, that Ross was. Ross seemed more interested in the little this character study. Of Sam, Sam is the character played by John Saxon, and 
he's got a good heart, so he lets the little old lady go. And he's, you know, constantly as a gambling problem. And you seem more interested in that than in establishing the Victor character. Right, which is the most, which is, he's a very, he's an interesting character, and Rosie Greer alternately does pretty well and not too well at acting mm-hmm. in this, but like towards the end, Rosie Greer's acting gets, gets considerably better. Mm-hmm. But like, but to be his fair, character, his character is a, his character is an interesting character, mm-hmm. and what I can, like, this like with two more rewrites you could have smoothed this out where to make it make uh, you know what i think they wanted he wanted to do a story was a cat and mouse chase yeah with the detective becoming more and more um sympathetic towards rosie greer Mm -hmm. until and and um you know, the glove is just the symbol of both of their, you know, frustration with the the system and the way things are. And the glove gets right. passed down to, you know, that gets passed from Rosie Greer to him. And all that happens in the story. But it's so, like, diluted and, and goes in different right. directions and doesn't really develop... Rosie, it like does the rudimentary things to make Rosie Greer a sympathetic character, but it could have done more. Yes, it could have. have it, it could have really played back and forth between the two of them, but they had Rosie Greer. They had John Saxon, who's a much better actor, and uh, so like it. But it it just seemed un- underdeveloped in that like. And then it almost had a Blade Runner feel to it, okay. of him chasing people. And then it sounds like they just. And and another thing that made me think it might have been doctored up is the uh, constant <laughs> voiceover narration. Oh God, yes. Constant, like they uh, they were uh, like, let's put some narration into this to make it sound gr- more gritty detective. But it's like, right. a lot of it's redundant. Mm-hmm. And and like sometimes Saxon's into it. Sometimes he sounds like Harrison Ford in Blade Runner, just doing yeah. it as bland as possible. And should, go, really, we got fourteen state, pages of this. <laughs> we should pretty much state very clearly that what charms this film has is because of its casting. You know, Saxon is much better than the, than the material he's been given here. Yes, yes, he's. And he's, I'll even say Rosie Greer is much is much better than the material he's given. Rosie Greer realizes his, like, he's a huge guy, and he realizes his physical presence on screen. Right. And he also, but he also, Rosie Greer's famous for being like showing up on Captain Kangaroo and showing yeah. kids his needlepoint. So he's able to portray the kid. Yeah, that weird sequence with the kid Rockman. Well, that's that that scene was meant to endear him, but that was at the point where you didn't know if he was a good guy or a bad guy, and then, and and it's so that's where you get the difference in the time period because nowadays when he's just like come in here Rockman and he's luring yeah. oh, him and immediately puts him on his lap and like we're gonna play the guitar together I'm like 
no, don't make Rosie Greer into a child molester. And it's like, oh, no, it's wholesome. This is a wholesome scene from 1979. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I get the impression there was stuff left in the cutting room floor. Uh There are two major questions I have plot-wise in this film. One is, why didn't they establish the little girl, the the daughter angle, the fact that they are kind of mirror images of each other earlier, because he doesn't mention that he has a daughter, and he's like, the only difference is I stay away from her because I don't want to poison her. Um, They should have established that a little bit earlier. And two, how the fuck did Victor know where he lives? Yeah, that's the thing is, you could have, like, obviously Victor was very smart, but, like, Mm. you needed to show him doing more stuff, like figuring out where where John Saxon lived and and all that. That would have been fun to watch, too. But then if we didn't have, if if we had more character stuff to establish how smart Victor was, we wouldn't have such lovable things as Keenan Wynn in the funny hat. Or um, the uh, lecherous real estate magnate who fleeces Sam of his money, utilizing his wife, played by the absolutely gorgeous Joanna Cassidy who I think never was not in a 12 on a, on a scale of 1 to 10. Oh, she's the she's like just prototype 70s beautiful beautiful woman, you know, like oh. in the in the in the long-haired Jamie Lee Curtis mode. Yeah. Um, it's funny. It's like she doesn't have you know, she she's fully clothed throughout, but she is just very very sexy. I mean, she, not... for God's sake, she runs around in a tra- for most of the film in track suit and a tennis outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was set, that was the height of sexy in those days. Yeah. I and uh, well, here's another thing that says TV movie to me. Yeah. No nudity. No nudity. No swearing. The only someone sa- someone says up to my ass in alligators. Mm-hmm. That's it. No blood. No no. You know, like gore. And yeah. and uh, yeah, nothing that nothing that it's almost rated G. <laughs> well, I wonder about okay, because there are, are two attack scenes. This is why I think the bulk of the of the Rosie Greer stuff was added after the fact. Uh, the one at the beginning, and there's one in the middle where he he fucks up somebody's bathroom. Yes, <laughs> that's a very satisfying scene to watch. And those are pretty br- those are pretty brutal, even though they're not exactly gory. Yeah, they are. But he doesn't kill it. But they're n- none of them are fatal, even. No, no, I don't think they're meant to be fatal. Right, right. He's and that's why I was like, "Ooh, this guy's probably going to be a good guy because he does it. He just beats him almost to death." I was thinking as I'm watching this film slowly, very slowly unfold that it was going to end with Sam letting him go. And I thought that was why they were establishing 
these parallels between the two of them. Yes, yes. And then we get this ending that seems to, to be dragged, kicking and screaming out of the black exploitation. Well, the the, the the ending like it had all sort there there all sorts of constructions going on on it yeah. like like Rosie like. I think, you know, the goal was Rosie Greer's got to die, but he passes on the glove to John Saxon. But it's very important that John Saxon does not kill Rosie Greer. Right. And is is, at that point is a would would want to stop anybody from killing Rosie. Well, even if he was even either way, his this this is a 70s, almost 80s movie. You know, he's not going to be like a lethal bounty hunter. So right. so they Although needed to figure out they it. needed to figure out the other the other guy and then have and then have him give right. a little exposition about why he did it before the the apartment building kills him. Yeah, the, the rival the rival bounty hunter Iverson played by the great Michael Pataki who correct me if I'm wrong was one of the first Klingons we've ever we ever saw in Star Trek. Oh yeah, you're right. I, I think he was. He may very well be the first. Isn't Day of the Dub the first Klingon story? I I would have to get back on you on that. I'm not as good on my Star Trek trivia, even though okay. that is original series. I should yes. I should know. Because I I I'm willing to bet he is the first I, Klingon we ever see on camera. The, I think the first Klingons. I want to say it was when the one where they go to the planet where the Organians are, but okay. I'm not sure. But I'm, uh, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, Michael Pataki, most geeks would know him at, from his Star Trek connection. Um, but but yeah, he seemed kind of shoehorned in. There's like that dialogue he has briefly with uh, Lieutenant Kruger. That in that one. By the way, we also want to know. We want to, want to note that John Saxon in this movie is a fucking horn dog. Everybody in the it's 1979, and I'll bet you <laughs> shot around 1975, 76. Yeah. Uh, and and be in the way that the, it's it's a glorious, not glorious, but it's a great way to look at through Me Too eyes mm-hmm. because like. There's the reality of how guys were really in the and on TV the portrayal of it of like just being like paw, just pawing every woman that they see that they're like hi and like yeah grabbing her and rubbing her shoulders or whatever and like John Saxon looking pretty much almost as sleazy as the real estate guy who's a right. Like who's like the older with the cigar sticking out of his yeah. mouth. Beautiful girls, you're beautiful, you know. Yeah. And and Saxon is just like, but but Saxon's younger, so his sleazy pawing is taken. Eh, if the women aren't receptive to it, they're just like. Yeah. Th- there was like that one really bad actress who was probably someone's girlfriend who goes no and then like walks out. That's <laughs> the one I'm thinking. That's the one I'm thinking of that that if it was the same scene was shot today that would be a sign that that sam was a pervert yes and this one she was just a disagreeable woman (laughs) yeah yeah this one it's just like because there's also uh the telephone answering service girl 
who is so into him. Well, she's like money, penny, and heat. That's his yeah. money. That's his, you know, they they're, were like, I think they were trying to put like hard-boiled detective tropes in there. Mm-hmm. But like their their modern take on it with with his character, and mm. uh, and I think he was supposed to be a more sensitive hard boiled detective or whatever. Right. But it it never came off like that. It ne- even with the voiceover and stuff, it never oh. really had the same spade feel to it, which I don't think is a bad thing. I sort of right. I sort of liked that. I mean, I think it would uh uh, I think a John a Saxon. TV show, weekly TV show with him as a bounty hunter would have been probably yeah. ended up being a classic with this as this character, with or without the glove. The glove is like, is like this symbolic thing that's not even really needed in any of this story at all. You don't need the glove at all in this story, even though it has symbolic resonance and stuff. If you take it away, the same thing still happens symbolically. So it's it's really weird it's really weird for it to my be the, impression the, the day was, and the focus of it my impression was that the screenwriters this this film was written by Hugh Smith under the, the name Hubert Smith and Julian Rothman off a story by Smith and director Ross Hagen my feeling is that they wanted to do a hardball detective thing but they were also leaning towards what was the most popular in 1974, which was where we're assuming this film was made. Right. Um, what was the most popular detective on television at that time? Jim Rockford. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that they, they wanted to do a classic hard-boiled detective, but they wanted to give him that whole Jim Rockford lovable loser <laughs> The, the music in this is pure Rockford Files yeah. music. As a matter of fact, that was another thing that made me think TV was the music, except, and it was noti- noticeable when it, except for the theme song, and then they had an instrumental glove theme song yes. that came in when the glove would get put on, which was noticeably, der- I mean, basically all the other music in this sounds like just stock Right. Soundtrack. Here's car driving. Here's yeah. intriguing mystery. But all, all, it's it's like somebody pulled out the the Wawa guitar file yeah. and pulled out the different categories of Wawa guitar background music for TV shows, and it's just sort of cut in there. Some of it, it has all different we- textures of that stuff. It's not really coherent until the glove theme comes on. And right. At the end, and I was I sort of like... the glove theme was added after the fact. Yes. Because yes. the glove theme is very consciously black exploitation. Yes. And here's another question. Okay, so you have the glove song, which I love, because yes. it has lyrics like, when a fistful of hate that's been lying in wait comes thundering down... <laughs> <laughs> All right, and it's sort and it's and it's definitely trying to sort of it's almost somewhere between like an Italian Western theme song where you're singing singing Very about Django-esque. a thing. Yeah. Yes, but it's also got that black exploitation shaft element to it, and and then I'm like and the, and the vocals sound like they were recorded in somebody's like living room. 
acoustics you know they with on a on a cheap mic you know they're very like voice like and so i'm like thinking to myself oh they got rosie greer to sing this because it <laughs> sounded very kind of unprofessional and i'm like yeah and then i saw the name of the guy who wrote it and i'm like i don't recognize that name and then i'm like why didn't they get rosie greer to sing this song and yeah. later on in the movie he's singing and he's not a bad singer. He's at, as, at least as good as the person who's saying the, the, the glove theme song. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they missed an opportunity for that. I think they should have put Rosie Greer right. If there was any chance of the glove theme yeah. being a, a hit, I think Rosie Greer should have uh, yeah, gotten the, in, the, on the, the, been in on the that. The vocalist was a guy named Dodie Stevens. Yeah, I mean... Let's not forget... Let's not forget the love theme from the glove. I mean, if that you get Isaac, the very end. if you have Isaac Hayes or Rosie Greer to sing the theme, you get Isaac Hayes. But yeah. if you get Dodie and, and Rosie, go for Rosie. Why not? Yeah. And make it consistent with them. You know, that you, you got the character singing about his glove and his hate. And, you know, you'll have no cell to sell. <laughs> You'd be going straight to hell. I was it so pumped for this movie. That I was so song. pumped just from yeah. the picture, and then the 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 theme song is basically that image of the glove, just <laughs> like with the theme song going to it. And I'm like, yeah, oh, good. I think I instantly started messaging you, going, oh yeah. my god, this this is. I think I think we found a. <laughs> A holy grail and it's uh, yeah. the song was but the you, thing you is, know how that's up an expectation for the film that the film just has no interest in in uh fulfilling which is the, the interest is in here's this guy i'm willing to bet that if, if this was a tv pilot as we suspect that we might have had some flashbacks to Sam's days in, or, or some discussion um, with a friend from his his minor league days. Oh as, yeah. As opposed to as opposed to this kind of backstory info dump that we got, and I knew I was in kind of. I realized that I was baited and switched when I realized that forty five minutes had passed without any mention of the glove whatsoever. Yes. Because I, you have... Once I realized that, I was just like, okay, I'm going to go with this as character movie. And it yeah. was a lot more palatable. Once I, once, It's like the stages of grief. I got to acceptance yeah. about how 40, 45 minutes into this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Halfway through, you hit acceptance. I have a... I, I, you know how... Um, oh, I also just a random random thing there's some weird stuff in there like one thing that maybe it was maybe closer to 1979 is the, the when he answers his car phone that rings like a regular yes. ring <laughs> it's got the cord he picks it up it's just like Wah! i don't even remember those <laughs> i didn't know that's how that that worked but uh i i think you know how everybody's always say complaining about remakes and saying yeah. why don't they ever remake imperfect movies or movies 
Because this... they don't have the name value. Right, exactly. That's why. Exactly. But I think as as go as something that could be remade and like you wouldn't even have to necessarily it, it wouldn't be it would I think this would make a good movie on its own as a as a sort of remake mm-hmm. but I would uh I would um I I would do it differently. I yeah. well it depends. It, it depends on who does it. Right. Because um if Quentin Tarantino should do it. Okay. And if he does it, the first... Because Quentin Tarantino can put out a three-hour movie. All right. So the first movie is... Um, and, and, the, and the first movie is this movie, basically, as written, right. by, uh, written by Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't end with Rosie Greer dying. It ends with the two of them hooking up. Django style. And then the other or half not the, Django the, style. Oh, the other, yeah, the other half of the movie is what leads to Ro, is what leads to Rosie Greer's death. Right. And and passes on, but a 3 3 hours of that that story with 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 a little little jazz up the glove a little bit. Yeah. That would be a fantastic movie. Now if it's just somebody who's a young filmmaker who wants to make a grindhouse movie, the first thirty-five minutes to forty minutes would be the pursuit of Rosie Greer, yeah. and then the last half of the movie would be them teamed up against whatever, running the drug the lords out villain. of town or whatever they're doing, Ru- yeah. running that running a combination of the drug lords and corrupt cops out of the city or whatever. Here's what but, would happen. Here's what would happen. Um, we would find out that because remember we get the backstory that. He ran afoul of this clique of guards who was um, who were involved, you know, who were involved in drug dealing and all this evil stuff, right? And that's why they beat him with the glove. It'll be revealed at some point that Iverson or Lieutenant Kruger was one of those guards. Uh, and he was the ringleader, and that's the other reason why Iverson wants to shoot him dead. Yes. Yeah, there's actually, there's was, so much potential in it. Iverson to be the Iverson or Lieutenant Kruger to be like the the last victim. Yeah, I wondered about that. I I there, there, I just I just thought there would be more victims. We live in a time where, like, if you're going to have a movie where, like, Rosie Greer would have to take out 60 people right. <laughs> in the course of this movie, you know? I mean, I haven't seen the John Wick movies yet, but I hear the bodies stack up like mm-hmm. cordwood, you know? So back in back in the day, I guess you didn't have to... You didn't have to kill anybody to... to know, uh, somebody does get killed in this film. The, uh, the uh, Filipino guy, the... The, the killer guy that he finds in the meatpacking place. Yes, yes. He does. He had it coming, but that wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that, and that wasn't Rosie Greer either. That was just no. John Saxon doing his job, and then the cops just go, hey, "Don't worry about it. You're fine." He yeah. Came Which nothing. is another reason why I think that 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 Hagen and Smith really wanted to do a story about 
the John Saxon character. Yes. What I what I like is uh, John Saxon in that scene does one of my and this is a t- big TV detective trope mm-hmm. is the old meat hook slide. Yeah. Where you grab onto the meat hook and you just like kick forward and just slide down and then kick somebody in the back Kirk style. Right in the Although center. The highlight of that to me was the meat slapping fight. Yes. I love <laughs> the meat slapping fight. Bin full of bones with flesh hanging off them and yeah. just like swinging at each other. Yeah, that was that was great. <laughs> that was that was great. I would almost say that, that that there's no real reason for Sheila to be involved in this at all. No. Not no. really. Just to provide a love interest. Yeah, and it just it, I was like, okay, uh-huh. I, I once again, you figured that she was going to get she was going to cross Victor's path path somehow. But no, no, she just has a couple of dates with him, makes out with him, and then gets creeped out by a body left in his um left in his house. Well, you know, I mean that she she she's smart on the the TV cop tropes, which is being married to a cop is no good. Yeah. So she as soon as she saw that chest full of weapons, she was just like, nope, 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 not not for me, nope, nope, no more affair for me. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was just um. And and when and and in the end, the only like super good guy in this movie is Rosie Greer. Yeah, they just could have. Even though he does these horrible things, he does them motivated for for real reasons. I mean, heck, the reason he went to jail was because he was avenging his sister. I, um, right, right. He's he's uh, like he's. And and nobody has sympathy for prison guards that beat you up in prison. You know, yeah. you know the cruel prison guards. So nobody and it's. I mean, if he took them and like impaled them on a fence or something, you know, right. or, or punched their heads in and killed them and stuff, then yeah, then he's a serial killer. But this is like, you know, there's there's no jury in the world that it wouldn't be like, yeah, I'd 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 uh, take the glove. I'd take the glove to somebody. He didn't even yeah. like kneecap him or anything. He just. Oh. Just beat him up and left him even even let him have a look at his face, you know, at right. the as he before he walked away. So, huh. how about the compassionate portrayal of gay men? <laughs> oh, I wanted to bring that up. Yes, this is the second. Isn't this the second film where we've had some really egregious gay stereotypes? Yeah, well, it's that time period, oh. and that's that's the funny thing is. Actually, this movie is fairly, um, fairly good for that time period. The one guy they have the one guy who's masculine and the one guy who's feminine, and they they are sort of t- stereotypes, but um, like they have a kind of tender scene when they're getting dro- when the one guy's getting drove away and like mm-hmm. kisses the other guy's hand. And John Saxon's watching and just like, like, you know, I made some money, but I didn't necessarily do a good thing right right yeah, now. Yeah. Where and usually it would have been like... That like, scene might have been different if we didn't... The next thing we didn't see was 
uh, Keenan Wynn, who great actor, love <laughs> Keenan Wynn. He's in he's in one of my he's in my absolute all time favorite films, which is uh, Doctor Strange Love for Harlan to stop worrying and love the bomb. Uh in a funny hat, going pussy cats. You got beat up by some pussy cats. As a matter of fact, and I now that you mentioned that scene, I forgot to write it down. But you can tell that it's actually like kind of a first take of it because he cracks up and starts over again Mm -hmm. in that scene. He like he cracks up and literally does like the the body language and facial Mm -hmm. expressions of like, oh, God, this is crap. You know, this this line is ridiculous and cracking me up. Let me do it again. And he does it again. And I'm like, oh, they just left. They, They were like, you know, that's naturalistic enough that. And it's just the kind they they just left that moment in there. It was kind of we, it was kind of weird and unprofessional, but it still it was kind of funny. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but that that line in 1979 wouldn't have been it wasn't scandalous at all, you know. No, no. We should mention a couple other members of the cast because this is very. Uh, there are a number of what you would consider a get for a TV movie at this point. Um, Walter Stratton, who is uh, Joanna Cassidy's husband, is played by Jack Carter, the comedian. And Aldo Ray plays Tiny. <laughs> and, and, jo- and Joan Blondell, of all people. I, don't, I, I wonder how... Because this is obviously far along in Joan Blondell's career. Joan Blondell's career going back to the 30s. Um, I wonder if this was like her last appearance or something, but, but yeah, but these are all people that were the kind of people you got when you wanted a a name to put in your TV episode. Yes. And, and like Joan Blondell is given a very, you know, isolated, you know, a, a very, a very focused scene on her, you know? Yes, exactly. But what, to, to show what a softy Sam is. It is, it is, but it's it's also very, very, you know, it's also got that feeling of like, okay, we got Joan on set this time, and like she's like she's very much the folk. Once you fi- figure out who she is, she's like mm-hmm. the focus of the scene, and right. she's a very good actress too. And right. that that scene, like, you can you can tell that the combination of like, good maybe some some actors and actresses who are friends of producers and stuff and the solid actors in it because the scenes once you get a, a couple good actors going and them start working a lot better mm-hmm. and, and more smoothly and that scene at the at, at the train station is, is or bus station bus is station. nice this was yeah. her next to what this was her penultimate film she was in this and then she was in a film called the woman inside and that was it for her Well, this isn't an embarrassing... Well, because she died. She died yeah. in December of 1979. So I'm assuming the, the woman inside was me. Which, once again, leads me to believe that this film, The Glove, was made much earlier than yes. it was released. The clothes, the cars. Yeah. The, the film even looks like it might have sat and aged a little bit. You know, there's some of the outdoor scenes are a little washed yeah. out and stuff. Also, but it's also filmed... 
it's got well, that kind of flat lighting. Yeah, no, it's filmed and, like a TV, like a TV pilot. It's right. filmed like a TV pilot where, you know, you got to get it done. So there's no fancy cam. You know, the 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 camera work is solid. The 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 mm-hmm. photography is solid, but it's cut like a TV show. Very very by the books and and you know uh, scenes are laid out and filmed in that in in a way that in a more expedient way rather than a more artistic way in a more like you know we got a lot of scenes to film today and and we got a professional crew here that worked on a million pilots so you know we got a three three people in a room set it up and they know just where you know where to put the lights and where to put the cameras to make it all work and so it ends up looking that way and feeling mm-hmm. that way, and mm-hmm. it's it's really only the 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 cast mm-hmm. that 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 makes it feel like a movie. The, I mean, the things that make it not feel like a movie are like no swearing, yeah, you know, the hard hard boiled bounty hunter hanging out with cops and mm-hmm. you know some cops that are like but, but you know gray, gray area between, cops and stuff. Yeah. And, What's the difference between Sam and Lieutenant and Lieutenant in this film, and Shaft and that Lieutenant and the Lieutenant in his films? Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's the I mean, seventies cops were all were all pretty sort of gray area, and and you know with different lines like a certain amount of gray area was expected and accepted, which as in. With, with this guy um, I looked up Ross Hagen because the name sounded familiar and um, this was his first film as a director but he was a big TV character actor uh-huh. appearing in among other things you know he was on Doctari he was on uh, Here Comes the Brides, the FBI, Gunsmoke, Cannon, Mannix, Longstreet. No Rockford Files, though, apparently. Uh, but either way, he'd been sitting around on a... This happened... A lot of actors... You know, Nimoy, yeah. did that. Nimoy did this. You know, <laughs> a lot of... Especially ones that did TV, because they spend a lot of time on sets. And they go, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, they, they see that they Yeah, they see how it works, and then they go like, okay, I could organize this if I had to. And some of them do. And of course, that would explain favorite, a lot of the look of this movie. Yep, yep. My favorite uh, acting credit of his is from 1966. He appeared in an episode of The Cat. Are you familiar with this show? Never heard of The Cat. Okay. The Cat, which is T period H period E period Cat. Uh, was it a Bond sort of? It was a one, I think it was a one season wonder. Um, it was about a, the world's best bodyguard, Thomas Henry Elliot Cat, who somehow, for some reason, all the people he was bodyguarding ended up dying. And he had to solve their murders. <laughs> so he sounds like the absolute worst bodyguard and and a fairly decent detective or a serial killer. Yeah. Robert Loggia, of all people, played T-H-E-Cat. Sorry, T 
Hewlett Edwards Cat. Retired thief, retired acrobat, and bodyguard to the stars. Just not a very good one. <laughs> bodyguard to the late stars, it sounds like. But, um... Yeah, Ross Hagen went on to direct such wonders as The Alienator. Which, um... And Click, The Calendar Girl Murders. So... That sounds uh, like some 90s Cinemax... Yeah. Um, erotic well, the thriller is I, I know that I think that Red Dollar Media have talked about it. It is a a science fiction. It's a ripoff of the Terminator, featuring a female bodybuilder. Basically, has the Terminator. Yes, I remember that actually from Red Letter Media. Yeah. So yes, I I believe they did a wheel of the worst with. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, yeah. passed on in 2011. So. But uh, yeah, that's probably what this this started out as. This this was he had an idea for a TV series. Probably came from all the time he spent on the sets of other TV series, and it shows its influences on its sleeve. And he added, the, the, I, I'm willing to bet that some of this was added after the fact to make it into a theatrical. Yep, or or they had. Or they had filmed like, you know, they they added back some of the stuff that they trimmed out on their first cut for it. But that would be less likely with if they were doing it as a pilot, you know, a pilot. But also for, you know, something that sort of works against my pilot ideas, usually in a pilot they don't have as much production on it. But then again, they might have just finished finished production on it and put this you know worked on the sound and the the foley and stuff like that you know mm-hmm. afterwards so yeah i i'm i you know too bad we can't we can't get the director on the show <laughs> unfortunately or john saxon yeah. or i yeah. wrote greer's gone too right i think he is let me take a look uh john Sax and the, the thing god bless john saxon he was like he was still smart as a whip well into his, his his old age. Yeah. I I in what in the podcast Dread Media we just did an episode that's going to drop as of this recording tomorrow, which is a tribute to Saxon, and I found an interview with him from 2014 where he's talking about working with uh, Bruce Lee and working with Marlon Brando and how Brando even back then was was using cue cards. <laughs> Rosie Greer's still alive, dude. Oh, maybe we could get Rosie Greer on to talk about the glove. He'd be like, "What?" <laughs> He's an older gentleman now. He, he let's see. He was uh, born in '32, so he's getting on in years. But he's still alive. God bless him. Wow. So uh, maybe we can yeah. get him on for the amazing two-headed transplant. <laughs> oh, we can't get Ray Milan. That's for sure. No. Wasn't that Chelsea? Well, there's one way to find out because I think the female lead in that film is the girl who was on is a girl who was on Laughing. I it's been I I'm not even sure if I've seen that movie, but I remember Rosie Greer. It was Rosie Greer's girlfriend. 
Yeah. Ray Boland's girlfriend. Rosie Greer's no, girlfriend. No, Rosie Greer's girlfriend. Yeah, Chelsea Brown. Chelsea Brown was the first, uh, the first uh, in the first season or two of of Laughing. Oh, okay. So it was like it was like they they always had a foreign girl, a blonde girl, and a black girl. <laughs> So, that was um, that was that was at the head of the curve. I always think a laughing is like the living color of its time. <laughs> and like I, I actually I was watching old episodes of Living Color and and being like, wow, this is like we've even we've advanced beyond Living Color. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and this I did, I did not know this until just now because I'm taking a look at now at Chelsea Brown's. Uh, CV. Her first appearance in film was as one of the belly dancers in another one of my, probably number four or number five on my list of all-time favorite films, Head. Oh, Monkeys are... The Monkeys movie, yes. yes. She was one of the belly dancers in the Can You Dig It sequence. Yeah, the Monkeys are the funniest people. Yeah. Oh, that is... I love... Ray, Ray Milan's also is it is it Ray Milan? No, no, that's that? Victor Mature. Victor Mature's da- is the one with the, is it's Victor Mature's dandruff in that movie. Yes. Yes, yes exactly. Well, my whole theory about that film is that it is the entire film is a fever dream caused by a bad burrito of Victor Mature's. Oh, it could very well be. I uh, yeah. That 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 last sequence that last scene of him driving the monkeys away is him just about to wake up. That makes sense. So, and I, it was, I, I imagine, and, and ultimately it was a fever dream in the monkey's acid soaked. <laughs> well, what do you expect when you get together with with Roger Nicholson and Roger, uh, Jack, Jack Nicholson, Nicholson yeah. and Roger Donaldson in a cabin somewhere and drop acid for a whole weekend? Yeah, that's what you, you get. That's where that story came from. That's where that whole film came from, but it's it's, it's magnificent. If 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 everything else in that movie was terrible, which it isn't, uh, actually almost everything in that movie is amazing. Uh, it would all be worth it just for the porpoise song. The porpoise song, I love. Um, uh, what's the, the, the Harry Nilsson song with uh, Davy Jones doing the dance with Tony Basil? Oh, I did not know that. Was, I have to go back and watch that because I did not know that was a Harry Nielsen. Harry Nielsen is somebody who is on my list of shame in the last few years. Yeah, I've I, I've actually started. I I actually realized I loved Harry Nielsen mm-hmm. when I realized that he wrote all the songs for the Popeye movie, and yeah. uh, and then I remembered, oh yeah, he had some big hits with the Me and My Air from animations and from stuff. So he was. The, I think it was called The Point. The it Point, was, yeah. Which I never be- saw because it was on a network that we didn't get. But I remember uh-huh. my mother having a book of sheet music that had me and my arrow in it. Mm-hmm. And as I started, ex- I've been exploring his music for the last few years. And he's he was one of the geniuses. Yeah, he was he, amazing. He wrote, there were, he's, it's, it's, it, I, what I find, you know, I'm a big monkeys guy, as you know, Chris. 
And what I find fascinating about, because Nielsen is one of many people who wrote, like, the first set of their music. He was just one of several, along with the... Uh, Carol King. Carol King. And Neil Diamond. Voice and Heart. The thing that I find fascinating is his almost all of his songs were written for Davy Jones, and it's about how much of a dick Davy Jones is. <laughs> Which sounds about right for Harry. I mean, yeah. Harry Nielsen is like that perfect. Like he almost perf- like it's no wonder he and John Lennon were drinking buddies. Mm-hmm. And like I'm a big Beatles fan. But I think Harry Nielsen sort of perfects that John Lennon, like the sim, like childlike simplicity and sweetness mixed with like vicious acid cynicism at points. I mean, the, I mean, like he doesn't always mix them out. Like he does sweet songs that are like completely sweet top to bottom, like sugary sweet top to bottom, and that he can right. sell, unlike you know somebody else. Well, I mean, you but, listen to Cuddly Toy, yes. which is one of the one of the hits, and that that's one because um, the one in the head that he wrote is a Davy Jones song, which is kind of it's just very dark, even though it's got that upbeat da 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 melody to it. Um, but Cuddly Toy is about him basically saying to somebody he just slept with, "Hey." This ain't love, baby. Yeah. I just wanted me some. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I love I love Head. I absolutely love that that's that uh I love that song. I love uh Circle Sky. I think it's probably the best album the monkeys ever put out, that soundtrack. Yeah, I it's whole. not my favorite monkeys album, mm-hmm. but I think it's their best work, you know, yeah. as as a band. It's their that like their most creative, you know, and it and it's funny because when I, I moved into a house mm-hmm. that that we rented and, and there was a lot of stuff left over from the people who rented the house to us in the in the basement and I remember going through the record collection and pulling out headquarters and head. Right. And being like, oh, Monkeys albums. And it, they were just sort of starting on MTV again. And I was like, okay, these are entertaining shows, but the Monkeys are kind of fluffy and stuff. And then listen to Headquarters and like, hey, these are some pretty good songs on here. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, okay, it, it angers. Okay. I know this is not the place really to go on this rant, being that we're supposed to be talking about Grindhouse films and stuff. The monkeys deserve a place. Yeah, but we're talking about the glove. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the glove wasn't that good. Do you recommend the glove? Um, not really. Yeah. If if you're like me, maybe. But like for the show, it was really good. Or if you're, I recommend it to a young filmmaker who might want to remake it or Quentin mm-hmm. Tarantino who wants to remake it to my specifications. <laughs> Anybody else, you can skip the glove, but mm-hmm. don't skip the glove theme song. No, the glove theme song is wicked. It is yes. wicked cool. But okay, the monkeys deserve their spot <laughs> in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And every time I yes. bring this up, because the thing is, I think the monkeys were essential in developing what 
we now think of as 70s power pop. They were they developed a lot of the the stylistic signatures that we see later on in bands like The Knack. And yeah. uh, and even later than that, my favorite band of all time, Fountains of Wayne. Fountains of Wayne, you can draw a direct line from them down to the monkeys. And the thing is, everybody looks at them as that, that, oh, well, they were manufactured. I'm like, yeah, but they were, ma- yes, they were originally brought together for totally capitalistic reasons. So are the Sex Pistols, people. So are a lot of, so are a lot of bands. Yeah. But the Monkees, at least, were transparently so, and they were very self-aware of it. I mean, right, they, they even even down to the show, show, they were self-aware of it. I mean, they were not, they were they were not um, dumb dumb people. They were not just yeah. a bunch of actors that they got. They actually had some enough musical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think the time period also gave them enough who leeway. Have, uh, who didn't have a musical background was was Davy Jones, right? But he um, could sing, you know. And that's... Michael Michael Nesbitt was a a folk singer from Texas. Peter Tork was a regular here in uh, here in the in Greenwich Village during the during the early sixties, uh, and uh, Mickey Mickey Jones. Who I think is the most valuable player of the monkeys, to be totally honest. Uh, he may have come from a background, uh, a film background, because he was in the show Ch- uh, Circus Boy. But he he became a good musician in his own right. And the thing is, is that you could see the evolution as they take more and more of the reins for themselves, and that they become. The thing that they were supposed to be in the first place. Right, right. The the yeah, they went from being main. Oh, you know, I mean, I mean, they they started writing songs, and their songs yeah. were pretty good. And mm-hmm. you and know, some they, of them are dark. Have you ever actually listened to Going Down? Not in a long time. Okay, Going Down, which is this like scat, you know, it's it's like a very scat-based, influenced, jazzy number. It's about a guy committing suicide and going, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Chosen in the river with a saturated liver and I wish I could forget her, but I do believe she meant it when she told me to forget it. And I bet you will forget it when you find me in the morning, wet and drowned. And the wood gets round, going down. And they let this go out on primetime television. Yeah, just pri- probably because the censors didn't pick, they realize pick it. up on it because of the happy... You know, yeah. that, 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 that was a fun thing about, that's always a fun thing about this. You know what the last train to Clarksville is about? No. It is a, it is a song about a guy going to Vietnam and wanting to see his girlfriend for the last time before he goes away. Oh, jeez. Look at that, those lyrics again. That's what that song is about. And it's happy as a clam when and you hear it. happy as a clam. Yeah. Now, that one wasn't written by them. That was written by Boys and Heart. But still, also, the other thing is, if you look at um, the Monkeys TV series, the two years Mo- Monkeys TV series, you can see them evolving into something much more interesting. Oh. I mean, that those last couple of episodes are so surreal. It's like there's one step, one step from... That last episode with Rip, t- Rip Torn, not Rip Torn, Rip Taylor, 
to to head. But yes, they just I don't care what you say. I mean, because every time I bring this up, there's always some guy saying they're just manufactured. They don't deserve. They 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 don't deserve. They didn't contributed nothing. I, that's right. Because I, I I made a complaint once last year because they were considering putting Dave Matthews in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, yeah, they're going to put Dave Matthews in the Hall of Fame. here's the thing. It's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not the Roll Very Little Hall of Fame. Okay, now we we hit one of my pet peeves, which is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And just to explain to everybody who doesn't know, anything like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there's, there's like... In podcasting world, there's like a a big like podcast like the inter- po- podcast awards or something. Yeah. These are not the United Nations. These are not like some Switzerland form to find excellence of. These are companies built by some entrepreneur, the the Rock and Roll mm-hmm. Hall of Fame or anything like that. Anything that gives awards that just manages to get enough people to participate in it and take it seriously enough that they have some that they have some sort of like you know value in judgment you know the rock and roll hall of fame is is a company and their calculation on who they i am sure they they do put they're like we have to put this you know we got to put chuck well, berry in there an overweight hippie and overweight hippie this is not the rock and roll hall of fame this is right. the john werner hall of the, fame. The, the rock and roll hall of fame is 1000 percent about getting people to pay tickets to go into yeah. the rock and roll hall of fame and buy some t-shirts and mm-hmm. some 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 merch That's it, it, it's a rolling stone it thing it's it's a it's a rolling it's all it's it's Rolling Stone magazine still thinking it's relevant, right? If it, <sighs> as if it ever was. Yeah, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Started on this, um, but but yeah, no, that's why I think we don't see because you you ask me, there are a number of people who deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, the Monkees I mentioned, um, Motorhead should have been in the in the inaugural class Judas Priest isn't in the hall the hall of fame and that's one of the greatest heavy metal vocalists of all time we're talking about yeah however yeah. Coldplay gets in huh. yeah well they're just thinking I you know I don't know I think the monkeys would pull in a lot of people because the monkeys yeah. were multi-generational the Motor City Five. There are a lot of bands out there who do who deserve to be in that are not in. Warren Zevon is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, and everybody's thinking, what, that guy who just wrote Werewolves of London? Let me tell you something. He had a career before that and after that that was amazing. Yeah, no, Warren Z yeah, no, Warren Zevon's one of the best songwriters in rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he wrote his songs aren't really songs; they're little tiny short stories. Yeah, yeah. That's what I love about. And he wrote for the Everly Brothers, and he wrote he wrote for. Ugh. Well, he was. He reminds me of, uh, not sound wise, but storytelling wise. Oh. <coughs> oh, what's his name that wrote Short People? 
Randy Newman. Oh, Randy Newman. He yeah. reminds he reminds me of Randy Newman without the the quirk to it, you know, without the like yeah. quirky quirkiness. But it's just like I'm gonna sit down and tell you a story, you know. And he's more well, guitar oriented. I love those kind of singer songwriters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love um, as much as I despise the Pina Colada song. Um, what's his face? Rupert the guy Holmes who wrote it. Hmm? Rupert the Holmes. Prince. Rupert Holmes uh, was a very talented singer songwriter and wrote one of the grossest songs ever because that he song. To- that song, I always when everybody's like, I love that song. I'm like, this song is about two of the most horrible people yeah. you'll ever meet, and it's about a time period. I don't know if he was trying to parody it, but if he was, it didn't work because everybody just thought it was a delightful, quirky, like sort of funny romantic Twilight Zone ending. Yeah, and it's about two people setting out to cheat on each on other. Each other. And then they find each other and go, oh, ho, 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 ho. well, no big deal. Right. <laughs> and, oh, you oh. know, that should that this song should have been about the end of a relationship yes, because it, they it were both being kind of garbage. And, but you know, uh, you know, history lines like still, I was bored of my old lady. <laughs> yes. The history is filled with rock songs that are misinterpreted, like every breath you take. A song about a stalker that has been the wedding song of many a Gen Xer. Yeah, yeah. It is a song about a stalker person, people. See, I don't think... I, even says it is. I, I, I think, like, I, yeah, well, well, Sting has said that he, that he wrote that as a stalker, but he also wrote it as, you know, he said there was a time period where I sort of thought like that. So he did yeah. write it from a place of familiarity so i think when he's performed it <laughs> people were just took it like more sincerely like anything like mm-hmm. born in the usa got you know every 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 everybody wanted to use it for patriotic reasons and it was so ironic no 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 born in the usa is a bitter angry song. yes yes oh uh, have you ever heard the stanley clark version no Stanley I love Stanley Clark, Clark, though. Jazz guitarist. Yeah. He just, it's like almost all bass, like, and he just brings the anger out. Born down in a dead man's town. First kick I took was when I hit the ground. You end up like a dog, just beat too much. to spend half your life just covering up. I was born in the USA. In the USA. Born in the USA. Which is funny, because Stanley Clark isn't usually a very angry... No. <laughs> he doesn't usually do this... very angry music. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but he's angry in this in this song. In this yeah, because he was probably just like, I'm going to make this blunt and literal so people yeah. can finally get it, you know? Usually people take songs and they'll, like, uh, when they do a cover, they'll try to do... that Since everybody's already established what the cover means and mm-hmm. feels to the general public at large, right. they tend to make it more subtle, but... Maybe sometimes it's better to... <laughs> For me, the sign of a good pop song is that it can go through... You can put it through different interpretations mm-hmm. and it will still be a good song. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as people... I know that there are a lot of people... Uh, my friend Hurricane Anna rags on her 
Billie Eilish, you know, bad guy. Yeah, it's a goofy song, but for, it's kind of nasty. And I've heard it done as an 80s style new wave song. I've heard it done excellently as a ska song. It works so well as a ska song. A band called The Interrupters. You heard it because I remember recommending that you, you look look for it for one of the the draft pieces. Yes, yes, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. It worked so seamlessly as a ska song. It's just. What's funny is I'm so not up on modern music that I with right. that version of it I thought that was the original that I was listening to. You know, it's it's funny. It's but like, it does work as a ska song. And yes. Like, for me, ska doesn't work all the time. It, it right. only works under specific circumstances with a good enough band, and that one was like. Oh, that that band, the Interrupters, are tight. They're, they're one of my favorite new bands. You know. They're right up there with, uh, you know, like Jade Bird, who is a singer-songwriter that I, I really, a female singer-songwriter, has like my favorite newest acts. I recommend, I recommend their catalog. But anyway, that's what you guys came here to hear. <laughs> me talking about, me ranting about pop music, because I love pop music. I love music. It's not just me sitting here with Virginia plotting the end of the world. Well, you know, plotting the end of the world is a lot more pleasant with music in the background. That's right. That I've always said, you know, when the time comes and I'm ready to, to launch my plan to take over the world, I want Bad Religion to do my soundtrack. Oh, thank God! I've you know at least you're not going to go the standard route of like, you know, bad guys, and it's like March of the Valkyrie. Not, oh, nothing no, against March no, of the Valkyrie no. or something like that, but like, I yeah. Greg, I want to hear Greg from Bad Religion's vocals, warning people about how things are going to change. I love Bad Religion. I, I I ate in a in a restaurant booth in our twenty. Mm-hmm. There's a twenty four hour down the street restaurant mm-hmm. uh, from us. It's infamous, and I I ate in there. And uh, a band came in and sat in the booth next to me and ate mm-hmm. and left. And then I found out after they left that it was Bad Religion. <gasps> and they had just played down. They had just played down the street. They weren't supposed to play, mm-hmm. but they were friends with one of the bands that were playing, and they crossed paths in Buffalo mm-hmm. and said, hey, let's do a show. We'll open up for you in the show in Rochester and surprise everybody. Mm-hmm. And I had almost gone to that show, but, oh, I, but I, I, I missed it and then then had them sitting in the, in the booth next right. to me right afterwards, eight left. And then everybody was like, hey, did you know who that was? That was Bad Religion. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, they just played down in the bug jar. What? You know, it, it's funny. It's it's like my friend Whitney Seibel, who we've talked about a couple of times on this show, he frequently cites this study he read about where he said most people stop discovering new music at 33. But I'm just hungry for everything. I don't think there is a genre I absolutely detest. Okay, that stuff that's called new country. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a genre. That's a subgenre. I mean, co- that, it's country, but that's just an offshoot of country. country. I yeah, love country. I love Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis and um, Linda Ronstadt and um, people like Wilco and Uncle Tupelo and the alt country stuff. I do not love new country, which is basically hip hop for rednecks. It is. It's sub hip hop for uh, we get a lot of um it's it's so funny because yeah it's uh the people who play it at work mm-hmm. are the are the youngest people mm-hmm. at our job so you're talking 16 to, to 19 to maybe yeah. early 20s they love the new cut co- they play it all the time and then it'll get to the the and the the people who listen to hip hop, but the, it'll get to the part where there's a beat or mm-hmm. or they they are semi rapping mm-hmm. and stuff, and you can see the hip hop guys go just like, oh god, and they're like, what's wrong with this? And they're like, dude, this is the most this is just trite elementary beat ever. You mm-hmm. know, they're like, this beat it's it's so funny, and I'm I'm listening to it thinking like, this just sounds like pop music right with with an exaggerated southern accent because the southern accents they have now i know i've been in a country band where i've done a fake country accent you know you you Mm -hmm. you you are you you lean into it's just like having an english accent it doesn't really show up in your singing as much as people Mm -hmm. think it does you know around the edges and stuff and in country music but usually their accents when they're singing them they'll they play them up rather than mm-hmm. so and yeah and the new stuff is just some guy who's a singer <laughs> it's like country music that's selling the most i can do yeah i can i could do, do that. that getting drunk on well, a plane look, cassidy pope considers her cassidy pope started i think it was called hello monday right after paramore hit paramore great band and I will fight you on this, people. Um, but it was it was obvious that Cassie wanted to be Haley Williams. She wanted a band just like Paramore. But now she's a country singer because that's where the money is right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, Darius Rucker, Rucker, Rucker well, from. That's, see, that to me is a little different because you could tell. From, I think he's better as a country singer than Hootie and I was never a fan of Hootie and the Blowfish. I thought they just like you just hear the country influences in Hootie and the Blowfish. Yes. So what basically Darius Rucker did was, I'd rather explore this part rather than that part, and he just became truer to himself, and that's why he's a better artist now. Yeah, I mean, he when you hear him singing country music, you're like, this guy was born to do country music. And he sort of transitioned before it was that was the yeah. the 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 money making thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, granted, I'm getting Kid old. Rock did that too. Oh, fuck Kid Rock! <laughs> fuck Kid Rock and your whole fucking goddamn I wear the American flag bullshit. The thing about Kid Rock that everybody just needs to understand is he did not come out of a trailer park like he likes to portray. No. He's a rich kid whose parents were connected in the industry and got himself a career and just sort of followed the money through it. And so. you know what? At that time, butt rock was the thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he he looked at he looked at Limp Biscuit and said, "I could do that." Uh, Fuck him. The, well, yeah. Uh, and, and you know what? Just the, just the statement looked at just the statement looked at Limp Biscuit and decided I yeah. can do that is like one of the most horrifying selection of words you can put together. <laughs> the. Oh my gosh. Uh, but. Speaking I, of which, someday we might be watching what a Fred Durst movie on here. <laughs> Fred Durst and his... Hey, he's a filmmaker now. He's doing how, can you, how can you basically rape a Who song like that? I, Please explain that to me. It's possible to ruin every song, I guess. Every song. Well, but... there's there's one thing about ruining the song, like, by singing it, but just conceptually, the fact of him portraying that character. <laughs> well, no, no. It, it, it's the fact that he knew, Fred Durst knew he couldn't do that bridge. If I swallow something evil, stick your fingers down my throat. You know, that whole bridge, right? Yeah. He knew he couldn't do it. So what does he do? Speak and spell L-I-M-P. Fuck you. (laughs) Yeah, I would not like to have been in the room with Pete Townsend the first time he heard that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he had a heart attack. Uh, it's just. Uh, I, 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 the sad thing is, though, is like most popular music just leaves me flat. But that's probably because I'm getting old. Um, it's not supposed to leave you flat. It's supposed to scare yeah. the hell out of you. That's why I'm disturbed or by make, popular make, music. I'm supposed yeah. to be. I'm supposed to be confused and disturbed by it. I'm supposed to go right. like, what the hell is this? This isn't even music. This is just fucking a square a square wave playing over a bird chirping atonally and yeah. they go, "Duh. This is this is a shit or something like that." But it's not everything I hear is just I I I'm kind of like even the like metaliest metal and stuff mm-hmm. is is not anything out of my vocabulary from when I was growing up from being a little kid, you know? So have it's like you, it's just weird. Have you ever heard of who? H U. A band called H U? A band called H U. They're a Japanese band. They are Um a hard rock band. It's called The Who. But they're a they're they're a um, they're a heavy metal op, op band that incorporates Mongolian throat singing. Oh, cool! They're great, and there's there's this Japanese band that I, they're kind of like half prog, half metal, 
and they use they, they write a lot of songs about like H.P. Lovecraft stories and shit. And I wish I could remember their name off the top of my head. And it it's sounds like, like this Taiwanese band that uh, I I saw called Cathonic. Okay, I, actually, I'm not I think familiar they were with that one, but. They were but, pro- they were pronounced thonic, but they, they were mm-hmm. spelled like Cthulhu, C C H T H U O, and uh, they were they were metal prog at, with a lot of the with a lot of traditional instruments being played by tiny little girls in a super heavy metal fashion. They okay, were amazing. I admit I know there are people who laugh at me, but I like kawaii metal. Kawaii metal to me is fun. It's supposed to be. That's that's something that people don't understand about metal is that it that it's that the people who enjoy it are having fun listening to it. It makes them feel good, you know. The thing is, that's what music is supposed to do. Yeah. Period. Music is supposed to 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 inform your life in some way, whether it's in the case of old school rap. Act has. What was it that um public enemy used to call it the um the cnn for for black people the what 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 did they used to call the, the cnn used for to call it like like cnn the cnn for the african for african americans oh, okay you mean just rap music in general yeah. just rap music in general was... it used to be <laughs> yeah it used to be now there was a time period of that but it's pop music now it's, they went through this period where it was all about look at all my shit Look at my Timberlands. Look at the hoes I hang out with. And I'm like... The the subject matter I've no, yeah. noticed lately has been romance. Not yeah. not necessarily always romantic songs, but, you know, just the, usually songs about, uh, you know, relationship songs, whether Ninja it be like the Isu. mumbly kind of rap. That is the name of the band, Ninja Isu. Uh. It's a four-man... Um, it's a four-man heavy metal prog rock outfit. Um, they dress up. Each person has a different character, a la Kiss. And there's a Shinto priest, a zombie monk. I forget what the other two. I think one of them is a Yakuza. And I forget what the other guy is. But it, the music is incredible. It's hard. It, it's, it's, it hits hard. It's great. And, and I, I really enjoy it. And I, yeah, I enjoy Kawhi Metal. I know it, the reason I kind of enjoy it is it's kind of the link between pop and heavy metal. Mm-hmm. You know, and that you get this kind of sugar rush from it. And there is a, somewhere on somewhere on YouTube you can find um, a duet between baby metal and Rob Halford, which is glorious. Oh, yeah. They sing they, they sing Breaking the Law together. And it is just because I love me Rob. I think Rob Halford is one of the, the best vocalists who ever lived. In that genre. I think he's an amazing vocalist. And just it, it those little girls in baby metal look so stoked to be there with him. Yeah, yeah, no, they are on stage with God <laughs> at that well, point. You know? It's funny because in the uh, in the in the, the clip, they have this like little like like uh, 
pre-recorded piece where it's like, the god of metal had to meet the fox god. The fox goddesses. You know? <laughs> and with, with this thing of like, you know, this big knight on a, on a motorcycle crashing into this box. And it's, it's totally over the top, but it works. Yeah, that's how... I. I prefer my metal over the top, to tell you the truth. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> why are, do you well, think? What are, what are what are some famous tasteful metal bands exactly? Well, has has the punk NBA likes to say, even though they won't admit it, metal fans love novelty. Yeah. Why do you think Kiss got on for as long as they did? Because they ha- they were a novelty. Why does Guar go on the way? Guar is a novelty. It's I, I think that this is something that that um you know the grunge phase was a a reaction in the opposite way, and I'm glad it's over. Mm-hmm. People like having a show put on. Yeah. If somebody's gonna take the time to learn songs, to work up, to put energy into a presentation that they're going to present to people, put on a show, you know, do, right. do it up, do it up. The, you know, the, the, and the, and the more you do, and the, and when people dress up in costumes, as long as you can maintain your level of like, you know, craftsmanship and artisanship in it, like people react to that, even though in, I mean, actually, the cheesier, almost the cheesier, the better people react to it because it's kind of harkens back to the days when, like, you had to learn to sing and dance right. and and do, you know, do, you, you had to do the full gamut when you were going to entertain somebody. Mm-hmm. And the, the more effort that you put into that, the more people will appreciate it. And a lot of people will be, like, too cool to, to like it or whatever, but they'll just right. get washed out. In the, I mean, like, Michael Jackson understood that, you know. Kiss understands that. You know, I mean, Madonna, if, if you're going to be, if you're going to present yourself as larger than life, be larger than life. Anyway, that's what you got, folks, because we were so disappointed in the <laughs> Me? Yeah. And, and I'm not the heavy metal guy. That's the thing that's funny. I'm ranting about heavy metal. Right? <laughs> I'm not Chris Tyler should be here ranting about heavy metal. He could he could give us a little more uh meat into it. But but yeah, no, but that's that, that that's that's how how excited we were by the glove. We actually spent about an hour more time talking about music. Like there isn't a lot more content to be had with the glove. Unless we went to some expensive detective work to find out yes. about the truth about the production, which would have been like a little bit out of our pay grade. And I'm willing to bet Jim Moon would have done it. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So, um, once again, people, we remind you while you're here on the Two True Freaks Network, take a look around. We have stuff coming out all the time for all different things. We have a horror movie podcast we have a star we have several star wars podcasts at this yeah. point don't we um no nah, well right now 
pretty much J Guys and Jedi okay. is the only active Star Wars podcast, but I've been working with Scott Gardner to try to figure out how yes. to get some more Star Wars content. When to get to get Star Wars Monthly Monday? Yes, back. that would be yeah yeah. There's there's some there's some comics we definitely are meaning hmm. to go over. We've got uh, we've got a podcast dedicated to the Power Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> got a uh, a podcast dedicated to liter- fine literature um uh to porn there's a porn podcast Eat yes a food. I, I will be recording that later on tonight there you go uh so so take a look around and there are always surprises i've been doing a series of specials um basically me having conversations with interesting people um and there are some other big surprises coming. We are Chris and I are working on stuff, and it's gonna it's gonna be cool. Don't worry, you're gonna love it. Stuff's in the pipe. Stuff's in the pipe. Stuff's in the glove. <laughs> and you know what the glove says right now? Uh, Go! With the claws of a cat on the track of a rat while the city's asleep. Something stalking its prey, just a shadow away, getting ready to leave. You can't hide behind any door when it's time to settle the score. No, you can't. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T W O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. My little glassy dovey.